This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. My father taught me as a young boy that the pursuit of justice is equal to all the other commandments combined. But as my mother would say to me, if you want to pursue justice, you have to feel the injustice. That's the voice of Professor Erwin Kotler, Canada's special envoy on Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. And yes, we've interviewed him many times here on the CJN Daily. But this is a clip from a brand new movie about his life, premiering on Saturday. It's called First to Stand, The Cases and Causes of Erwin Kotler. It's not a biopic. Instead, the filmmakers focus on his 40 years as an international human rights lawyer, acting for some of the most famous political prisoners of our time. From Nathan Sharansky, a Jewish refusenik who spent nine years in a Soviet prison until being released, to South Africa's former president, the late Nelson Mandela, and to more recent victims of oppression, such as Rafe Badawi, a Saudi blogger with a wife and children in Canada, sentenced to a thousand lashes and 10 years in prison. The producers call Kotler a hero. He's already been nominated for the Nobel Prize. But Kotler says the people he helps and their families are the ones who deserve the praise because they are standing up for all of us against dictatorships. Because what's on the line here is really uh, democracy and all the values that underpin it, free speech and the like. And these are are the values that these people are putting on the line at the cost of uh, their own lives. I'm Ellen Basner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, December the 8th, 2022. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Filmmakers spent over four years with their cameras trailing after Kotler. The former McGill Law Professor and former Member of Parliament from Mount Royal flew all over the world to collaborate with human rights giants like Sharansky in Israel, Amal Clooney in London, and with Bill Browder, the American businessman whose lawyer Sergei Magnitsky was murdered by the Russians. We learn that Kotler himself has actually been a target. He was poisoned by the Soviets years ago and even arrested by the old apartheid regime in South Africa. You'll hear from Kotler himself shortly, but since he hasn't seen the film yet, and we didn't want to spoil it for him, I'm joined first by the filmmaker Irene Angelico in Montreal. Well, it's really great to meet you. Congratulations. Uh, The film made me cry, and I was... So I highly recommend everyone looks and finds it and goes to it, and and hopefully they will when the premiere happens later in the week. But uh, let's talk a little bit about how it all got started. How did you get the idea for doing this? Well, we wanted to do something about human rights and about some of the issues that um, you see in the film. And we also thought it was time that somebody did something about Erwin Cutler. So it was a perfect marriage. Erwin Cutler has been a champion of human rights his whole career since he was a student. And um, he has been, uh, he has taken some of the most important human rights cases of 
last century and this century. And now uh, women in Iran, like Shafrak Shajarazadeh, who lives in Toronto and is one of the prime movers of this movement that's happening in Iran now. I don't think people today will remember that this happened to, to Erwin, that he was poisoned in Moscow, he was arrested. You know, you see an 80-year-old diplomat and you don't think about, you know, the young Irwin championing these causes and actually physically himself being in danger, right? Well, he's a champion of human rights and um, he goes up against uh, repressive regimes and dictators and they don't really like what he has to say or do. So um, he puts himself in danger. Um as does Bill Browder, who's constantly being arrested and and uh, harassed by Putin and his uh, people. Mm-hmm. Speaking about his Jewish faith, I need to ask about this because it's not really evident sort of right in your face in the film. I mean, we know, the community knows, many people who know who knows of his Jewish upbringing, his Jewish background. But it isn't a heavy presence in the film. In fact, it's pretty much not much talked about. Well, I think um, there is no question that this is his background. This is um, what he learned from his mother and his father, who he talks about at the very onset of the film, uh, onset of the film. And that Jewish philosophy, that Jewish belief system, the belief system in justice, as being the most important, highest value. This is this is the Jewish faith. This is how it's translated into the cases and causes that our film is about. So the presence may not be in your face, but that basic faith and belief system is in every frame of the film from beginning to end, I think. Do you get any sense of the deep responsibility that he might, must feel to put activists and people who were in his cases and causes more in the public eye, and then bad things happen to them, such as they get, as one of the people in your film, the Iranian agents in New York tried to kidnap her and bring her back. Do you know what I mean? So by giving more publicity, he's trying to shine a light on the leaders to let them let these people go. But also that then has a secondary sometimes, do you know what I mean, uh, unexpected consequence that they then are more in, in, in risk, too. And how does he did you see what I mean? And how, how do you feel about that? And how does he feel about that? Well, Irwin isn't called on and called on until there's already the risk is in place. He doesn't create the risk. And I don't think he would ever do anything that would directly further endanger any of his clients. These are people that call on Irwin when they're in trouble and he comes there to help. Um, But all the people, that's why we call them first to stand. Irwin is one of the first to stand and every single one of our featured participants are the first to stand up and take a risk and stand up despite the risk. So that's just the name of the game. If you want to change things in Iran by putting your hijab at the end of a stick and waving it around, you're going to get into trouble. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if this announcement that came out the other day that the Iranian government is 
thinking about getting rid of the morality police, which is a major issue in our film that Chaparak talks about. And uh, Irwin says that he's not so sure that it's actually true, but it's the beginning of a people's movement there that Chaparak and Massey started that will, I believe, eventually change um, the morality police so that they don't exist anymore and um, give more freedom to women and to the people of Iran. What do you hope will happen with this film? What impact do you want it to have? We want people to have the courage to stand up. That's the whole idea of the title is that you may be alone when you're the first to stand, but soon after others follow. So we're beginning to see a movement um, in Russia. We're seeing something in Iran. We're in, in bad times right now. So we're not expecting these repressive regimes to change anything. They're just going to hold on to power. But we're hoping that the people will stand up with these first standers and um, push for real change. And you said before we were speaking uh, for the podcast, we were discussing a Nobel Prize for peace. This could be his like application form from you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he needed that. He's, um, he's done so much great work and he's so appreciated by people. I mean, whenever we bring up Irwin, people, oh, I'd do anything for Irwin. So uh, he has later hours than most people half his age. Talk about that a bit before we end. And people, I know this because I've interviewed him at four o'clock in the morning, you know, our time, his time in Israel. He, he works all the time. What, do you, what did you see? Oh, that there's no question about that. Working all hours. And now we're having some screenings of the film in Canada and um, he will be in Israel. So he is going to get up in the middle of the night to Zoom his presence to be part of the Q&A after the film. Um, <clears throat> and of course, uh, he was dealing with late night calls and we did one scene where we show him working late at night and some of the staff people are there too. He's, and his, his schedule is just, it's relentless. Um, he can't necessarily remember what it is, but he's got people <laughs> to help him with that. And it's just nonstop work i mean he's uh, he's got a lot of energy and uh, a lot that he has to do you know he feels completely committed to do and now i'm joined by professor kotler how did it come that you agreed to be in this film in the first place i i agreed reluctantly uh, to do it and then i agreed because it was going to uh, spotlight the, the cases and causes that I felt had to be highlighted. And to the extent that I've always felt that you have to shine a spotlight uh, on uh, the assaults on human rights and at the same time shine a spotlight on the courageous uh, defenders of human rights, some of whom are featured in the film, I felt that made it worthwhile. And you mentioned the word cases and causes. So that, of course, is is the title, right, or the, the theme. Can you explain the significance of that phrase? Well, it, it, basically, it's 
and it relates to the present moment. I mean, we're at a historical inflection point at this point. We're seeing a resurgent global authoritarianism, the backsliding of democracies, assaults on human rights, but political prisoners as a looking glass into that uh, dynamic. And this film uh, really will help highlight these courageous uh, political prisoners who are not just putting their lives, they're putting their lives on the line and they're doing it uh, for all of us. You've seen a lot, and you said 40 years, you've met a lot of cases and causes, as you said, people have become your friends, your closest confidence. Is there something in common that makes them tick that's similar? Can you even say if that's something that some essence that they all have? They all have what I would call moral courage. Um, they, they all are uh, unafraid uh, to confront evil, uh, to stand up uh, to it, to speak out uh, against it, whatever uh, the cost personally may be. So it's moral courage that is the common characteristic that animates them all. And uh, whether you, it's a Mandela in South Africa or Sharansky in the former Soviet Union, the manner in which they stood up reflected that inner moral courage and the confronting of evil. I wanted to ask you about, you said, at, no matter what the cost. In the, oh, I, I don't know if I can tell you this. In the film, well, it's true, it happened, it's been in the news. One of the people who you used to lobby with, um, so Masha, uh, I hope I'm saying her name right, the Iranian journalist who lived yeah, in New York. The Alina Jad, yeah was um, herself attacked, almost uh, abducted, right, by uh, agents of the Iranian regime after she came to do some lobbying and what have you. You're aware of this, of course. How do you balance bringing these people forward to fight the causes of, on behalf of others with their sort of possible even worse consequences by doing so? And that was an example of she went public here where she thought she might be safe on the West, on the West side of the, you know, the world. And do you know what I mean? I, do you understand? I, I know I understand. And, and, the and what responsibility or what risk assessment do you do when you do these things? Yeah. So she's a, a, a case study, really a dramatic case study of an increasing uh, phenomenon that is very uh, dangerous, which Iran is at the core of it, and that's transnational repression, a uh, way that are threatening, intimidating, seeking to kidnap, etc., and even bring back uh, to Iran uh, for execution uh, courageous uh, Iranian dissidents abroad, Iranian-American dissidents like Masih Alinejad. But when it comes, let's say, to uh, representing these political prisoners, I don't take up a case of a political prisoner unless the family authorizes it unless the family understands what's involved in it because uh, when you take up the case of a political prisoner you don't know what the consequences might be for their family uh, or the community of which they are a part so you have to really uh, be authorized to take up the case you can't just choose to oh i like that case i'm going to take it up we only take up cases and causes where we are authorized to do so and where we share the nature of the advocacy that we are going to engage in with the person, the family on whose behalf uh, we're doing it. And it's a joint uh, struggle and common cause. But it does give you pause that you're putting them maybe, as you just mentioned, even at more newer risks that you maybe not have been aware of earlier, right? 
Yes, and then you also get up with, with certain um, uh, sort of uh, strategic decisions you have to make. I never forget when Sharansky was in prison and the South Africans had a Soviet general in a South African prison and they were prepared to trade that South African general to get Sharansky's release from the Soviet Union. And I was reluctant to be part of that because I wasn't sure that this was something that Sharansky would like, that his release would have been brought about by a South African uh, apartheid government intervention. But I remember I was speaking with Avital Sharansky, his wife at the time, and she said to me, Erwin, I just want him freed. And if it takes the, the South African government to help bring about that freedom, I don't care. I want him free. And, and you know, in the end, that Soviet general died in the South African prison before we could embark on that. And when Natan got out, I discussed it with him. I said, would you have wanted me to have done something like well, well, I won't go into the answer to that one. <laughs> I'm not uh, sure he would have liked it. The, the film doesn't talk about your last couple of years as special envoy working with the IRA definition. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that, the Holocaust remembrance and, and fighting anti-Semitism work that you do for the Canadian government. Um, was that a, cho a choice that you decided that you wanted or did like, why is that not in there? Oh, first of all, uh, the, uh, they made the film, the producers. So uh, I, I didn't have any hand into what, they chose to do but the reason is because they basically finished the film before i was appointed special envoy it was only the pandemic that has held up uh, the finishing touches to the film for their purposes and that's why i got released now but uh, the film was done before i became uh, special envoy that's why uh, one of my friends who saw the film said wow you look a lot younger well because most of the filming was over three years ago <laughs> That's one of the next questions I had. It shows yeah. how peripatetic, how frenetic the pace you've been keeping for the last four years as you do this work. Um, two things. A, how do you keep energized and motivated that you even motivated um, General Dallaire? <laughs> and second of all, with all that you're facing on your plate, how daunting does it get sometimes because in the film you never swear you don't throw coffee you don't cry so you know how do you keep going those are the two things when, keep, against, against like such daunting challenges because i always have in mind and uh when i go to bed at night and when i get up in the morning the plight of these political prisoners and they're in front of me all the time and I can say to myself, whatever I do is nothing compared to what they are enduring at any given moment in time. Just like my friend Vladimir Karamirza, now in a, a Moscow uh, prison, we've been friends for you know close to 15 years. It's a very close friendship. And so um, he quoted something that I once uh, said, that the most important thing for a political prisoner when they're in prison is to know that they are not alone that we are standing in solidarity with them. And that's the message I believe we have to keep on giving and keep on engaging in. That is a relentless advocacy on their behalf until they're released or to ensure that they're at least not tortured in detention until they are released. <laughs> you have a lot on your plate. But being Jewish, does yeah. that pose 
how do you how do you navigate that with some Muslim clients who you're dealing with? Has that ever posed a problem for you because of the difference in religion, support for Israel? You know what I mean? It, it, it's never uh, posed a problem uh, for me. I mean, for me, a political prisoner is a political prisoner, uh, regardless of their uh, you know faith or. Uh, no, no, I meant from their point of view, would they be reluctant to trust you or deal with you because you are Jewish? Have you ever dealt I, with that? I've not uh, found that. I have found uh, the whataboutism. In other words, uh, when there may be some reference to me defending political prisoner X, well, how come uh, you're not uh, criticizing uh, Israel with respect to the Palestine? That kind of thing. Because the irony that somebody uh, that most people don't know I, I don't think it's in the film because I don't think I ever shared this with the The first political uh, detainee that I ever took up was a Palestinian detainee in the mid-70s by the name of Tasir al-Aruri. So that's the irony of this whole thing. He was the first detainee I took up. What happened with that? He, he was released, and that was part of how I met my wife-to-be, who then added when I was very delighted that he was released, he's released, but no thanks to you. <laughs> Yes, you're on different sides, but your family's not a big part of the film at all. In fact, they're barely in it. Was that also your decision? No, I had nothing to do with it. Um, I think my wife had something to do. She, I don't think, uh, wanted to be part of the film. That's the way she is. She's modest. She may be a, a strong advocate, but she's very modest in her in her personal. So she's not part of it. And I think that's regrettable, maybe, the family is not part of the film because they're part of my life and therefore they've been part of the advocacy. When you talked earlier about um, threats, death threats or kidnapping threats to these um, political prisoners and their advocates, we didn't talk about your own safety and the family's safety. Um, I'm not going to spoil what happens in the film about things that happened to you in in the historical past in, in South Africa or in Moscow, but what about when you were dealing with things now, what kind of safety issues are you uh, dealing with? Death threats, attacks? Look, look, I think in the world in which we live, uh, you know, people are exposed to all kinds of threats. Uh, I think that comes with the territory, as, as they say. If you start thinking about that, then you may not uh, continue staying engaged as intensely as one has to. So, yes, there are threats, but I guess... Uh, and as I say, in the age of social media, everybody's threatened these days. So I, I just say that comes with the territory. Okay, so that's pretty much all the questions that I had. And I want to wish you good luck when you see it. It's going to be fun. I hope I won't, uh, you know, I hope I'll be able to watch it not being too self-conscious. And uh, it'll be good in my family. I think for them, it'll be good. If you can make the film screenings in Montreal, it'll be on TVO at the end of February. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. You're cordially invited to join us for our CJN Hanukkah party and magazine launch. It's Thursday, December the 15th at 7.30 p.m. live in Toronto at the Prosserman Jewish Community Center. There'll be goodies and entertainment and a chance to hear from your favorite CJN personalities, including me, I'm the MC. We'll have conversations with some high-profile Jewish artists and movers and shakers. So let's have a Sufganiya together, RSVP to me at ebesner at the CJN. 
Today's listener shout-out goes to Greg Tug, who liked the story from Tuesday about the new film series on Canada's Jewish history, but he didn't like the fact we covered Benjamin Dichter on Monday, the spokesman for the Freedom Convoy. He felt I was too soft on him, that I should have challenged him more. And some of you agreed. We have received a lot of mail about that interview. Alan writes that, quote, the CJN shouldn't give a voice to anyone involved in the so-called Freedom Convoy, whether Jewish or not. Now, Alan did not listen to the podcast and said he wasn't going to. I've also heard from Holocaust survivors who thought I should put the word Freedom Convoy into quotation marks if we value democracy. I've also heard from some listeners who thought I did a pretty decent job of putting Dichter's feet to the fire when I challenged him on some of his conspiracy theories, and I got results because he backed down about the Nazi flag and the Confederate flags being a setup by liberal supporters and then couldn't prove it. Look, Dichter is a legitimate journalistic story, and it's worth pointing out that there were lots of Canadian Jewish people who supported the vaccine mandate protests, as well as those who were against them. I can always use your feedback to do a better job here on the CJN Daily, and believe me, I read everything you write. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be back Monday. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.